Hello and welcome to The Word is Out, a mission-centric podcast featuring Dr. Alan Meenan, pastor and preacher and teacher of God's Word for over 40 years, and now the founder and faithful leader of a missions organization that reaches out to the world with the Word of God. But not as you would probably presume or expect more on that in a moment. Dr. Meenan was born in Belfast, Northern Ireland. He came to the United States as a seminary student to attend Asbury Theological Seminary, where he received a whole bunch of degrees. What were those, Alan? Uh, Two master's degrees at Asbury and an honorary doctorate. And then uh, he studied at the University of Edinburgh, which is uh, out there in Scotland, and uh, at Yale. In Edinburgh, you received your PhD? Yes, PhD in Old Testament in Edinburgh University, and um, I was a research fellow at Yale Divinity School. So basically he was a professional student for a very long time. Too long. Did you ever pay off those loans? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, most of them were, were done with scholarships, so I was really fortunate. So oh, okay. when, I, when I graduated, I didn't owe a penny to anybody, which was really nice. Well, that's good. Uh, you know, probably can't say the same for most people these days. Um, Alan spends about half his time each year living and working in the U.S., and the other half of the year in Kenya. Alan, welcome. Thank you, Kip. Um, appreciate the introduction, but you haven't said anything about yourself. Uh, well, you know, I'm just your average Sunday morning pew sitter who marvels at the work being done in the mission field. Um, tell us, first of all, how you became involved in missions. Oh, my goodness. Um, that goes way back to pre-conversion days before when I was about... Um, when I was a teenager living in Ireland, um, for some reason I thought if I were to become a Christian that God would send me to the mission field and that was the last thing in the world that I wanted to do. I wanted to just live out my life in Ireland and uh, and happily do that. But um, you know, when I eventually became a Christian, realized that it might be possible not to, to be a Christian, not be a missionary, that was a big relief for me. And um, so from there on, kind of, uh, I was um, church attender, um, got involved, uh, um, certainly was uh, keen in my faith, and um, and had an opportunity when I was 19 and finishing high school to volunteer for a year abroad, and they sent me to East Africa. And I fell in love with East Africa and with Kenya in particular, where I lived and taught a taught a high school. One day I was a high school student and the next day I was a high school teacher. And it was a great experience. The result was that um, God had placed in my heart uh, a love for, for missions. And so when I graduated with my first degree, I hoped to, um, to be a missionary, but uh, I was not able to get a position at that time. So I went on and did theological study in at Asbury in the US and um, completed two master's degrees, went to Edinburgh, did a PhD, uh, tried to get a job again, couldn't get a position, became a pastor in the States, but always my heart was yearning to go back to Africa. So Africa uh, stole your heart and now fast forward through a series of uh, churches that you were pastoring at, um, from the East Coast to the West Coast to Texas. Yeah, and... all kinds of all kinds of things. You know, yes, it was. I had the privilege of ministering in Virginia and then uh, California, then Texas, and then back to California, where we live currently um, in Palm Springs. 
um, for half the year. Um, but yeah, from east to west to center to west and uh, all over the place. I've been in too many places and too many degrees and too much stuff. But your work today isn't really what one might expect of the traditional missionary experience. What what makes your approach different in the missionary field, in the missions field now? Kip, there is a sense in which I think that um, we're engaged in the a neglected part of missions, and yet uh, perhaps ultimately the most important part of missions. You know, traditionally most people acquaint or think of missions. In terms of um, hospitals, schools, clinics, uh, agriculture, um, all of which are essential parts of missions. And there's no question that great work, orphanages, another one, great work is being done in all those regards. But um, And even, even some missions are, are, are engaged in uh, teaching, education, pa- training pastors. What we do is specifically directed to helping pastors in the developing world uh, hone some kind of um, expertise in actually understanding the Word of God. Because if you don't understand it, then, you know, proclaiming it. And, um, And so we are very focused on just that one thing, helping pastors and church leaders in Africa, Asia, South America, wherever, Europe, uh, America, um, to understand God's word better. Um, you use an inductive Bible study method, right? That's really the, the, at the heart of it? Yes, yes, yes. Yes, um, and, and the reason for that is basically that everyone comes to the Bible with their own ideas. You know, many, many pastors in Africa, for example, just as an example, um, they basically listen to evangelists, American evangelists on television and regurgitate what they hear. Um, And so there's a sense in which uh, much of preaching and teaching in the global south is is really more concerned with um, uh, passing on knowledge rather than discovering knowledge. In other words, they People go to the Bible basically telling the Bible what it says. We're trying to teach them to let the Bible speak for themselves, speak for itself, Um, to let the Bible make its imprint upon them rather than them making an imprint on the Bible. Does that make sense? Well, um, it's it's perhaps a little confusing, isn't it? It can be. um, Essentially, you know, what we do is we, you know, we, we try to show them that uh, that each book in the Bible was written by a particular person or persons with a particular message and agenda, and that uh, the inductive study is to try to discover what the writer was saying, what the message is, how he communicated it, uh, what are the nuances that he's communicating. Um, Rather than, you know, just re- reading bits and pieces and taking them out of context and, and saying, you know, this is what this is what this book is about, because the book may not be about that. Uh, so it's getting into the mind of the writer, basically, as, as best uh, that one can possibly do that. So that's more the inductive approach than uh, we don't deduce truth. We 
we basically attempt to understand what the writer's doing. So basically, we, we will examine the, the book as a whole. We will see what the main theme of the book is, what the writer is emphasizing, and then go about how he, how he um, maneuvers his material in order to achieve that end. Um, and then we can get at the heart of the writer, and then we can get at the heart of the message. Can you give us an example? Oh, there are many examples. Um, let me let me suggest, for example, uh, in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, there are in fact um, two Exodus events, very, you know, rarely ever known by a casual reading. There is the Exodus event that takes the people out of Egypt from chapters one to chapter twelve. They eventually get out by the by chapter eighteen, but. And then they get the law. So the book is divided into this section that, that is the story of the Exodus, followed by law and tabernacle. But the law and tabernacle section is interrupted because there is an event that occurs there very similar to, the, to what was occurring at the beginning of the book. At the beginning of the book, Israel is threatened, the existence of Israel is threatened by the Pharaoh. He's trying to um, to kill all the male ch children in Egypt that are Israeli or Israelites. And, and by the time you get to chapter 32, God is going to destroy the people because of their infidelity. So, and there needs to be a second deliverance. And that second deliverance in many ways is similar to the first deliverance. So the writer is, is is telling the story of of how God delivered people from his people from the land of Egypt but when they get there how they need to be delivered from themselves so um, it, it kind of it ties in together and and the way the writer arranges the material throws us back from the second exodus into the first exodus to realize, what the Exodus is really all about. Because what it's all about is not so much a physical deliverance, but a spiritual deliverance. Wow. And we would miss that if we just saw it in terms. And by the way, it seems to me that in the time of Jesus, that's exactly how the, um, the scribes and Pharisees also saw that they, they were looking for a Messiah who would physically deliver them because they looked back to Exodus and they said, well, Moses was a physical person who delivered us, so we want someone who will come and deliver us from Rome. Huh. But it was a misunderstanding of the book of Exodus, because Exodus was, was, was certainly a physical deliverance, but much more it was a spiritual deliverance. And so, so that's... Um, so uh, the Pharisees would have been using a deductive method as opposed to an exactly. inductive method. Exactly. And to, and therefore misunderstood. So when the Messiah did come in the form of Jesus, they totally missed it. Hmm. Because he wasn't a physical deliverer. He was, in fact, a spiritual deliverer. But that spiritual deliverance is back there in Egypt. Right. But they, they, they didn't see, you know, it's unless you see the, the what the writer is doing to unfold the book. You can easily miss that. Huh. That's great. So what you're doing is you're you're teaching 
pastors um, how to see the Bible from an, in, an inductive point of view so that they can better teach it to within their own culture. Yes, but even more than that, I mean, we want them to understand it holistically. We want to understand it, understand it contextually. Uh, we want to understand what was going on and how the, how the writer develops his message for a within a particular context and how he does it. Um, so that, yeah, it's certainly an inductive methodology without question, but it's also a holistic approach that we see the books as entities. You know, one doesn't, when, once it's time to read a novel, you don't jump from page to page. You don't read page 17 and then, you know, a few paragraphs in page 34 and then a few paragraphs in page 101 and then look at the end of the book. And yet that's exactly what we do with the Bible. You know, when you sit and read a novel, you, you start page one and you finish at whatever page the novel ends. You read the book as a whole. Well, sometimes I go to the end first and then, but. <laughs> Especially if it's a murder mystery. The <laughs> 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 whodunit. But, you know, again, we need to help people, not only, not only pastors, but generally people who read scripture to read the thing holistically to, um, and contextually to, to, to begin the beginning and read through the end and get a gist and feel for what the writer's doing. Because only then can we begin to understand the mind of the writer. And if we miss the mind of the writer, we miss the message. And we create a message that may be similar to, may be antithetical to, may be in agreement with, or actually even, even opposed to what the writer was trying to say. Yep. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. It's, it's a deep topic, and we're going to talk more about that in future episodes. Uh, but I want to I want to take us back now um, and talk about the origin story of this ministry. You know, it started it. Yeah, it started kind of um, it was, it's almost funny. Um, I was a young pastor in Richmond, Virginia, and um, I remember the Sunday vividly when I stood up and said, OK, turn turn your Bibles to the book of Zephaniah. And, and the congregation looked at me like I had three heads. And they thought I was joking because, you know, I'm a bit of a jokester. And, and they thought I was joking. They, they didn't. And I realized of a sudden they, they, they didn't know there was a book in the Bible called Zephaniah. And so I told them what page it was on. And, and then I went home and I started thinking, you know, God's people need to be a people of the book. And they're not. And they need to become better acquainted with the book. And so I decided that I would start a series of um, Bible teachings. And we start on a Wednesday night and I started working with them. Only a handful of people, actually. It started very modestly, even though the church itself was growing like crazy. There were so many other Bible study programs that uh, this one really never caught on hugely. And maybe there were a dozen people or so who would come and and we would we would work our way through scripture, and then, um, and then I received a call to a church in California, in Los Angeles, and uh, and there we decided we were going to do a. They wanted a Wednesday night Bible study. They didn't have other kinds of Bible studies as the first church did in Richmond, 
And so we started a, a Wednesday night um, and, and they announced it on the on the radio. And all of a sudden on a Wednesday night, there are more people on a Wednesday night in the Bible study than there were on a Sunday morning. Hmm. And uh, that began a series of, um, of events because uh, it was a lot of work. And so members of the congregation helped me put a book together. We, we called it Discovery Bible Study. And we used material from a church in Dallas that um, really wasn't terribly good. But we, it was, there wasn't really anything on the market that we could use, which was, tell, it was telling. So we used material ourselves. We put it together. The church Wednesday night thing grew like crazy. We met in the fellowship hall. We, everyone was, you know, got a study book, got a Bible, got a, sat beside a, behind a, a table. And we just, we had a two hour marathon every Wednesday. And so it kept developing. And then we went to Texas and um, did the same thing again. Only we upped the ante with uh, the kind of material we were using. And, um, and then Hollywood, California, where we upped the ante again. And, and all of a sudden on a Wednesday night at our Bible study, two hour Bible study um, on a Wednesday night from seven to nine, we had more than 700 people attending Wow! Um, who wanted simply to know what the Bible was saying. And, and there, w- there wasn't any, there weren't any hymns singing. In fact, we didn't sing any hymns. We sang a benediction. We did not. We offered one prayer at the beginning, and it was two-hour lecture with a potty break in the middle. <laughs> for you? No. Uh, no, for, I'm kidding. For, I'm for, kidding. For <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, and it was just, it was just amazing. So that was the beginning of it, and then we got uh, requests from people, missionaries around the world, asking, you know, what is this material we're hearing about, and. Could you make it available? And then I started getting invitations to to go overseas to teach this. And one thing led to another. The session of the Hollywood Presbyterian Church elected to um, uh, to give me time to to go and do that kind of thing, and also conducted a study, a feasibility study, to see if if there was anyone else doing this kind of thing. And mm-hmm. we find that no, no one was doing, no one was filling that 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 specific niche. Um, and so we pressed forward, and uh, when I left Hollywood Press in 2005, we launched into full-time teaching around the world. So wow. uh, we've been doing it for, what's that, 14 years. Wow. Uh, and why call it The Word is Out? Well, it was kind of just a um, kind of a neat name, you know, that this is God's Word, and it's out. And, and, uh, and, and you know, the, of course, people talk about The Word is Out, we just happened to have the the word is out.com. I think other people want it uh, now, but we have it. Um, because, you know, the, the idea is if we can get the word out, if this really is God's word, then there's nothing more important in all the world than people understanding it. And so it is that understanding that, um, that we're getting at. So let's get the word out. That's kind of the idea behind the name. But why is this kind of approach, the inductive Bible study approach, so critically important particularly in the areas that the word is out, is targeting? Well, you know, again, the problem in the developing world is that, you know, they're experiencing humongous church growth. 
statisticians tell us that 130,000 people are turning to the church every single day, 365 days a year. It is a phenomenal growth, experienced mostly in Asia, Africa, and South America. Um, and as a result, you know, these people are flocking to church. Churches are growing like crazy, but pastors are not trained. They're, they have received no theological training. Basically, they come out of the, the, the woodwork and they set up a church. Everybody's setting up churches. Um, the village where we live 10 years ago, 10 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, um, there were no churches whatsoever. Today, there are over 100 in the little village of Okunda in Kenya. So you, you reckon then you've got 100 pastors. Of, of the 100 pastors, very, very few are trained. Very few have, um, you know, have any understanding whatsoever. And, and, and the reality is that they're not going to go to seminary. There aren't enough seminaries. There aren't a lot of decent seminaries. There are some really good, good schools uh, throughout Africa, for example. But they're few and far between. There are a lot of Bible colleges that are kind of, uh, if I may call them, you know, rinky-dink places where, you know, it's just a smattering of theological education. And oftentimes the, the, what they learn is heretical stuff. I mean, not consciously, but unconsciously. So the need, you know, if the church in, in the global south is going to be the dominant church of the future, which according to missiologists and statisticians, uh, they affirm that that's going to be the case, then we've got to be careful to ensure that that church really understands and reflects God's word. I mean, if, 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 if that is not the basis of, of the church's life for the future, then the future is, um, is, is filled with all kinds of, of problems and dangers. So um, I, I think, you know, the, the ability to be able to, uh, to teach people how to understand God's word becomes paramountly important. Far more important, if I might, if I might have be audacious enough to say, far more important than all the other stuff like orphanages and um, hospitals and schools, uh, vital and wonderful as they are. Hmm. Um, but if we get this wrong, then the whole foundation of, um, of Christian understanding will be threatened in, in, in the world in, in the future. Actually, if you get it right, uh, doesn't it actually portend well for all those other the orphanages and well of course of course exactly um this basically is the foundation of everything this is you know this is this is where the rubber meets the road we've got to get this right we have got to get this right and and we're you know it's with the with the church growing as exponentially as it is um it's incumbent that we do it now it's important that we do it now. It's important that we don't wait. It's important that we bring as many resources to bear on this mission as as, as is humanly possible. Because, I mean, I really believe, I, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say the future of Christendom really depends upon sound biblical teaching. And I would add that we do not, in our conferences and courses and training, we do not teach do any specific doctrine. We don't teach people, because that's deductive. We don't teach people in any particular um, theory or understanding of Scripture. We let we give them the tools so that they can understand um, for themselves. 
and and you know we allow we allow all kinds of latitude within that but but you know as long as they're following the tools i i mean one of the reasons why christianity is so diverse today and so many sects and denominations is because i think we've been deductive in our approach i i i think i honestly believe that there would be greater sense of of oneness and unity if um if we all use these tools of basic understanding um you know everyone wants to say this is what the bible means but one needs to ask first um what does the bible say hmm. uh, before you can ask what it means so and that's a question that is not asked in theological question circles from from my point of view everyone wants to be an interpreter uh, but the observation of the text becomes the main enterprise and that's what uh, that's what we're doing well we'll spend more time on that in future episodes yeah but i want to yeah. i want to ask you about the impact how's uh how's the impact been for the word is out well we're reaching literally we're reaching thousands of pastors we conduct conferences and we have people attending anywhere from uh, 100 to 500 pastors will come. Um, those are week-long conferences in which we basically walk them through a particular book to show them what can be done. And then we teach seminars with people who um, will become future teachers. And then we select indigenous pastors, bring them to America to be trained in uh, inductive Bible study, and then we send them back to uh, to their homeland. And thus far, we have, uh, and we establish, uh, we hope to establish centers for biblical understanding. We have such a centers established in Lusaka, Zambia. We're in the course of establishing one in Kenya, and we're looking to establish one in Myanmar in Asia. So um, hopefully, uh, hopefully, I mean, I mean, I honestly wish, I mean, I mean, the need is so great that there's a sense in which at times I feel what we're doing is a spit in the ocean. Right. And, and I, you know, I, but, but Jesus started just with 12 people. So, um, and he changed the world. So why not? The word is out. Um, but we are making a huge impact. I wish it could be multiplied greatly. Um, and hopefully, God will allow us to do that. Well, absolutely. Hopefully, hopefully that is. And and here we are on Good Friday, as we're preparing to celebrate Easter, um, and uh, and we're talking about the word is out, getting the word out about about our Savior, and about the the plan that God has for all of us. That's mm. a, that's an awesome thing. Uh, as we wrap up here, give us a little nugget, uh, something to ponder going into this Easter weekend. <laughs> Put you on the spot. Um, Actually, yeah, I'll is... feed you something. I'll feed you something. Okay. I heard. I heard that Good Friday really is the victory. Uh, most people think of Easter as the victory, but if you think about it, Good Friday is when the victory happens. The confirmation of the victory is on Sunday. Whoever said that is uh, has said a really great thing. Um, 
You know, first of all, I want to tell you that uh, Jesus didn't die on a Friday. He died on a Thursday, but that will be a debate for some other time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so it really should be Good Thursday, um, but uh, and there's good reason for that. But one, one day we'll have a chat about that. But um, but here's here's the thing. Often the church has for two thousand years taken the uh, the statement of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As a cry of dereliction. That's what they call it, a cry of dereliction. But you see, if you study the, the, the if you study that text and you study the story and, and you do it inductively and contextually, you discover that it is no such thing. Even though the vast majority of the church believes it to be the cry of dereliction, it is no such thing. It is in fact a cry of victory. Hmm. And I say that for a variety of reasons we can't get into. However, let me say that um, Jesus was quoting Psalm 22, which begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No one has suggested that God forsook David, but we somehow seem to think God forsook his son, which he did not do. Psalm 20, 22 actually states in verse 24 that God will not forsake his son. Interesting. Yeah. In, the very, in the very Psalm that Jesus, and the Psalm ends with the words, it is finished. So Jesus was quoting the psalm on the cross. And Psalm 22 is a classic, what we call in, in biblical understanding, is a classic lament. And by that I mean that it begins with a plea, but it ends with a praise. And, and the turning point in Psalm 22 actually is in verse 22. So the first 21 verses are the plea of David, and then the remaining verses are the praise. So when Jesus is taking the psalm upon his lips, was he pleading or was he praising? Hmm. And the reality is he started off with the, with the plea, but he ended with the praise. And so that cry of dereliction is a cry of victory that has been echoed down for 2000 years, telling us that whatever problems we face in life, if Jesus Christ on the cross can cry a, a cry of victory, then we're able to as his followers to do the same in the perplexity and difficulties of our lives. Well, that's awesome, because the person who told me this was my son-in-law, uh, who is also wow. a pastor, and uh, so you guys are very much aligned, which is wonderful. Great. Well, thank you, Alan, uh, for joining me today on The Word is Out, our inaugural podcast. Um, I look forward to continuing our conversation and digging a little deeper into this inductive Bible study approach on our next podcast. Where should we start, Genesis or John? Uh, wherever you like, Genesis is a good place to start. <laughs> In the beginning, right? Absolutely. In the beginning, yes. All right. Yes. Well, thank you, Alan. We'll, we'll talk soon. Okay. Thanks, Kev. God bless. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Word is Out, a podcast on a mission featuring Dr. Alan Meenan. If you'd like to know more about The Word is Out, visit us online at www.thewordisout.com. You can also keep up to date through our Facebook page. We'll be back with another podcast soon.